To anyone who says there's nothing about politics in the Bible, I offer the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And then the prophets, they're the op-ed or God-ed columnists. They interpret the goings-on that are chronicled, particularly in Kings and Chronicles. And then there are the Gospels, of course, but it's good to start with the Old Testament texts. To anyone who says there are no analogies to contemporary life or issues in the Bible, I offer the tales of the prophet-priest Samuel, King Saul, and king-in-waiting David, a plot line that is worthy of house of cards or scandal. The drama continues. When David is finally crowned king, and after David, well, there's a new version of the old TV series Dynasty making the rounds now. Analogies are popping up all over the place. But more seriously, the future of our world, the world as we know it, is our greatest concern, and leadership. Who can lead? Who should lead? Whose leadership can we trust? Leadership is our greatest source of confusion, or at least of uncertainty. And we do well, as people of faith, to look into some of the stories that we've inherited Maybe not for answers, but maybe for some help understanding what's going on around us and the choices we have to make. The story begins with Samuel, born in a time when words from God are rare. Either God is taking a rest or the people just aren't listening. An old priest, Eli, is in charge of things in Israel's first temple. God is letting Eli age quietly out of the job, and God is not going to allow Eli's sons to take his place. They've given up on God, and the feeling is mutual. Enter Samuel. He's given as a little boy, given to Eli to raise for God's service. And as Samuel grows up, it dawns on Eli that Samuel could just be the one, and not one of Eli's own sons. And then Samuel gets a word from God. Remember, it's been a while since there's been one. So Samuel grows into a new role, far more powerful than Eli. And Samuel is God's man in Israel. And Samuel becomes very good at reminding people that he is God's man in Israel. And he's pretty sure how the country should be run, a theocracy, with Samuel as God's voice in the land. But the people want a king. They want to be like all the other nations around them. They all have kings. Give us a king, they say. And Samuel says, no. Surprise? But surprise, God says, yes. They want a king? Let's give them a king. Now, in ancient times, people believed that kings sort of rise up like Samuel did at God's call, with God's power, in God's time. But Israel just wants a king, so they'll be like everybody else. So Samuel has to find a king, fast. Someone who's well-known, popular, who is much loved. Someone who wins battles, is good at war, and someone who stands tall and looks good in fancy robes. Saul meets all the requirements. 
Saul is the people's choice, and they are ecstatic. This is the first and last time God actually puts the platinum seal of approval on a more or less democratically elected leader. Saul rules with God's blessing until the power goes to his pretty head. He's corrupted. He doesn't listen to Samuel, and not listening to Samuel means not listening to God. He disobeys, and the blessing's withdrawn. The seal of approval expires, and God has someone else in mind. So he sends Samuel down south to find the man who will be the one true undoubted sovereign. We read the first two episodes in David's great story this morning, and the first is a sweet little comedy. God's having some fun. The joke's on Samuel and Jesse and us and our assumptions about what makes a leader and whom God favors. The first of Jesse's son, Eliab, looks the part, and Samuel is ready with the anointing oil, but doesn't Eliab, tall, dark, and handsome, look a lot like Saul? God reads Samuel's thoughts and says, I am God, you are not. You look at what you can see, I see what's deep inside. And God says, no, seven times. And Jesse's starting to worry. Samuel has to ask, do you have any more sons? Well, says Jesse, there's one more, the runt of the litter. The Hebrew can mean both youngest and smallest, red-faced like Esau. He's out playing shepherd while his brothers are on parade. Hmm, a shepherd from Bethlehem. Does that ring any bells? So Samuel anoints little David, and somehow it's clear that God's Spirit is with David, and Samuel moves on, job done for now. Well, episode two, David is God's choice to be king, but there's a problem. The people's choice, Saul, is still on the throne. How will the two meet? God's spirit isn't with Saul anymore. A different kind of spirit has come on him. Saul still does his job as king, but he has these headaches, these rages. Enter David, and the story unfolds. There's too much to tell today, but it, it, it unfolds as a story of deception and betrayal, attempted murder, love, loyalty, and grief. Poor Saul. Samuel hates him. God has left him behind. David climbs over him to the top by almost any means necessary. And David grows up to be a political mastermind, a military genius, a great lover, a pretty good dancer, and he loves God. He has a real friendship with God like Moses did. He's also a murderer, adulterer, a terrible father, a true narcissist with a personality bordering on bipolar disorder. And the storytellers insist that David is the greatest king ever, the builder and savior of the nation, a man after God's own heart, and God sees what's in the human heart, which means human intellect and human will, not emotion or desire. But these stories and all the David stories work on more than one level. On the surface, they're propaganda. 
They hold David up to later generations so they will remember who they are and where their people came from and how God has been with them through all times. These stories were first told in their form for a people who haven't known real peace or freedom or unity in their lifetimes. So stories of the king who united the nation and built its capital, which they, which they believe is the center of the universe, they need these stories. And even the stories that prove David had feet of clay, sometimes a head of stone, but always a heart on fire for God and God's people. And beneath the surface, these and many stories that follow them tell us of the evolution of a nation. We have two versions of a lot of the stories, reflecting two theological and political positions. Two tellings that tell us there is more than one way to imagine and understand what it means to be the people of God. And there's a deeper level. These stories are about human beings doing their best or their worst to be faithful. People who believe or, or try very hard to forget that God has to do with everything in their lives, and everything in their lives has to do with God. And some of the stories are painted as landscapes, like David's battlefields, and some of them are cameos, like David's and Jonathan's love for each other, and some of them are portraits, dark, intimate portraits, David's grief over his son Absalom's death, David's remorse over his murder and adultery. David's stories, especially underneath the politics, the battles, the triumphs and tragedies, are human stories. And it's remarkable that these are stories that Jews and Christians together remember as sacred, sacred stories of a sinner and a saint, a saint and a sinner, who we Christians believe is Jesus' most important ancestor. And there's one more level to explore, and these stories reveal to us truth about God. The God we meet in the stories of Samuel and David, of Elijah and Elisha in the days of the kings after David, the God of the prophets, is sovereign. It's very clear. I am God, you are not. But this God listens. This God is responsive. This God judges, warns, punishes, rewards, and frequently changes course. This God allows people freedom, cuts them loose to make their own plans, their own mistakes, and to learn the hard way, the truth. I am God, you are not. You need me, and I love you. And underneath all of this is covenant, God's bond of promise to us, that makes us responsible for so much and binds God to be faithful to us, whether we act responsibly or not. So this God would never choose to have anything to do with theocracy. This is not the God of fundamentalists of any religion who want to impose their absolute truth claims on others in God's name, of people who insist only they know how God wants the world to be governed. This is not a God who would join any political party. Believe me, God would not want the emails and fundraising phone calls. This God would not bless any platform, holus bolus. 
And we have to remember that as other Christians shout all the louder that their candidate is God's candidate, the savior of the nation and the world. Winston Churchill once said, a man who is not a socialist at 18 has no heart, and a man who is not a conservative at 35 has no brain. Now, Churchill was never a socialist, and after he joined the conservatives, the other conservatives never believed he was a real Tory. But at any age, you or I can be, at least on the surface, just as certain about politics as Churchill. But it seems God gives us the freedom to believe and vote as we choose. And God's will can be expressed under any banner. Well, almost any banner. Remember, we have the freedom to choose to follow any leader, including a leader who claims God's anointing for himself and claims a certainty that no human being can ever have. The living, moving, changing God that we meet in story, psalm, and prophecy works through, in, and sometimes against human politics. Scripture makes it pretty clear the direction that God moves in, yes, for the good of all people and all creation. It's very clear. Yet we can never claim certainty or be absolutely right when we decide the direction we will move in, but decide we must. And the best we can do is do the best we can do for the good of others and the earth and offer our successes, our messes, our failures, and our partial victories to God. And I think that's the exact opposite of what a lot of religious people cry for and call godly rule or theocracy. To anyone who insists there's nothing about politics in the Bible and anyone who says there are no analogies to contemporary life or issues, I say give the book another look, especially the stories of David. David. 